I remember one day when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was left on my own for an afternoon for a period of time when my mum had to go and help my gran with something. Now she didn't know how long it would take. Uh, she simply said, I'll be back soon. And uh, as she put on her coat and shoes, she said those words that most teenagers dreaming of a lazy afternoon dread. While I'm out, make yourself useful. Uh, hang out the washing, she said, tidy the house, clean the bathroom and hoover. And can you make dinner? It's tuna and sweet corn pasta. Even you can make something that simple. And if you get all that done, she said, we'll get your favourite takeaway tomorrow night and a movie from Blockbuster Video. Now, as she walked out the door, she turned to me and said, and Liam, best behaviour, I don't want anyone in the house, especially Craig. He's a bad influence. Sure, Mum, I said. Now, think about that scenario for a second. What is teenage Liam meant to do with the information and the instruction he's just been given? Should he, A, sit on the floor and stare at the door in speculation over when his mum will actually return? Or should he, B, ignore the instructions, dismiss the idea of a reward, set up his Amiga 500 for another season of Championship Manager and phone Craig to come round? Or should he see, do as he's been instructed out of love for his mum and the reward kindly offered? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's C, the information concerning his mum's return, the instructions about what to do in the meantime, and the promise of a reward are all designed to help me obey and then enjoy the blessings of obedience. Now, the book of Revelation serves the church in exactly the same way. Jesus has promised his people that he's coming back, he's gonna return. We don't know when that will be. All we know from this uh, opening, from the opening section of Revelation chapter one, verses one to eight, and this closing section that we're looking at tonight from verses seven to 21, is that it's soon. Jesus has left his church some instructions about what to do in the meantime. And from Revelation 1, verse 9, all the way up to Revelation 22, 6, indeed for the entirety of the vision that John received, Jesus explains what his people should do, what they should expect, and what they should avoid. So let me summarise in chapters 2 and 3, he's called seven, the seven churches and all who hear the letters read to love God and his word, to overcome everything from fading love to false teachers. In chapters four and five, he calls the churches to look into the throne room of heaven and see who's truly sovereign. The slain lamb, Jesus Christ, that changes perspective on everything. And then in chapters six to 16, he calls the churches to stand firm in the knowledge that life is gonna be a bumpy ride, but judgment will come on the unrighteous and all suffering will be gone. In chapter 17 to 20, he calls churches not to jump into bed with the world or to side with Satan, for both will be destroyed and the ungodly with them. And then just as my mum promised a meal and a movie as a reward for my obedience, Jesus himself promises some way better, the rewards of the new heaven and new earth that we've looked at in the last few sermons. In chapters 21, 
1 to 22, 6, he calls churches to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord to come where the church, Christ's bride, will be forever with the bridegroom, Christ, in eternal joy. And then in chapters in chapter 22, uh, 7 to 21, this passage we're looking at tonight, Jesus himself points out to us that all of that is designed to help us obey today and enjoy the blessings of faithfulness now and later when he comes. This is a section we're going to walk through to wrap up this uh, 28 sermon series in the book of Revelation. And I've divided it into three points because actually Jesus' own words about his soon return in verses 7, 12 and 20 shape this section. And it's wise, actually, whenever you see shape, to always pay attention to it, pay attention to the author's structure, because it's not accidental. It's instructive. So what does Jesus want us to do with the words of this book? Uh, Three things. The first thing, obey. Keep the words of this book. This is what we see in verses 7 to 11. Look with me, verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Now, prophecy, that is what this book is, according to Jesus. It was introduced as prophecy way back in chapter 1, verse 3. And as it concludes, Jesus himself and his angel call it that in verse 7, 10 and in 18 as well. What is prophecy? Well, in the most simple terms, it's when God speaks to his people through a human speaker or author. God speaks through prophets throughout the Bible to inform, reveal, instruct, challenge, sometimes console his people in order to help them be faithful. And what we find in this passage is that John is just one in a line of many prophets. The angel said so in verse 6 and verse 9. He's not the source, you see. John's the scribe. He's not dreaming this up. He's writing it down. And all of that to emphasise what we saw at the very start. This book is bookended by the fact that these aren't John's words. They're Jesus' words. Now, you know what that means. It means they are what we learned last week in verse 6. They are trustworthy and true, just as he is. It means that they carry the weight of his authority and are stamped with the assurance of his actual sovereignty. What he promises, he'll provide. What he asks, he expects. What he says, he will do. And blessing, happiness or joy is to be found not in casting his words behind you like litter, like the wicked in Psalm 50 verse 17. Not in adding to or taking away from them as the foolish do in verses 18 and 19 of this chapter, but in keeping them, as Jesus says, in verse 7. Now, what does it mean to keep God's word? Does he want us to store it up somewhere safe, put it in a safety deposit box, uh, keep it safe in a bank until he comes back? No, of course not. Throughout the Bible, to keep means to obey. Blessed is the one who obeys the word of this prophecy. Now, obedience. Obedience to many sounds a bit slavish. Or any aversion to doing what someone else says can actually blind us to the indescribable joy of living in happy submission to Jesus. But we can't let that happen because Revelation reveals again and again the extent of his love for us. 
from chapter 1 and verse 5, which tells us that he loves us in plain and simple terms, to chapter 5, verse 6, it shows us proof, and chapter 7, verse 14, the wounds of love of a lamb who once was slain. You know, I could give you tens of references to the expressions of Christ's loving care in this book, all of which show us that Jesus, when he calls for obedience here, he isn't cracking a whip. He's shepherding the sheep towards a future that none of them deserved, but get to enjoy freely. Our happiness, our joy, our elation is wrapped up in accepting, treasuring and keeping or obeying the words of this prophecy, God's word to us. Do you see that? Now, what does it actually involve, keeping God's word? Well, the answer's in the text. Keeping keeping God's word involves worship. Worship is the first thing that John wants to do as he emerges from this entire revelation. Look at verse 8. He falls down at this after this vision of Christ, his plans, his power, his promises. It's so mind-blowingly wonderful. John actually falls down to feet at the worship of the, the mess uh, and worship the messenger, the angel. But the angel says, Whoa, 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 don't do that. No, no, worship God. And that is the right response. That's what helps us keep the words of this book. You know, obedience is actually the fruit of adoration. And keeping Jesus' words, it's no bother to us when we love Jesus himself, when we adore Christ himself. And keeping God's word also involves uh, unleashing it to do its word. I mean, verse 10 is a very clear allusion to Daniel 12, where it says, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Now, back in Daniel 12, Daniel received a vision of what was to come in the future um, with overlapping subjects uh, and, and events that are tied up in those that we've seen in Revelation. But what was Daniel told? Daniel was told, seal it up. This is for a later date. Full understanding would come later on. But John is told in pretty much the same terms, except for one word, do not seal it up, because the plan of God has now been revealed. It's a secret that's out there. The time that Daniel saw coming down the track is here. This is the age of the church, the time for the word of God to go out and do its work, and that work is there in Revelation 22, 11. It does, as it says, divide humanity into two camps or categories, the righteous and the wicked. Indeed, that's what Jesus in his earthly ministry said that it would do. And don't we just see that today? You know, cursed are those who do wrong by refusing God's word. They continue to do wrong and cement their sinful state for eternity if they don't repent. That's what it means when it says, that let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong, verse 11, let the vile person continue to be vile. People will do what people will do in keeping with the hearts that they have. But blessed is the one who does right, who keeps the words of this prophecy. Verse 11 and uh, tells us that they're going to keep on doing what's right and holy. Fascinating to see. So the first thing Jesus wants us to do with this book is obey it. Keep the words of this book. The second, look. Fix your eyes 
on his reward. That's what we see in verses 12 to 19. If you look with me, verse 12, Luke, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Again, these are the words of Jesus Christ. Now, to those who read this book of Revelation and hear the news that Jesus is coming soon, Jesus offers this gentle but firm reminder that with him comes judgment. And his authority to judge is outlined in two places in this section, as it has been throughout the book. In verse 13, the thing he wants us to know about is his eternality. He's eternal. He says so three times. I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end. Okay, in other words, no one precedes him. Uh, no one outlives him. Uh, the, the eternal nature of his life and existence is, is as if to say, no one can kill me. No one's going to overcome me. But then in verse 16, he calls himself the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And he's just scooping up three Old Testament references like we've seen done many times before in this book of Revelation to say that he's the one who was foretold, prophesied of in Isaiah, in 2 Samuel 7, in Numbers 24, the one who held power in the past, power now, and power to bring about both the cataclysmic judgment and the cosmic renewal that we've seen mapped out in this book. Now, I remember my old head teacher, Mr. McGovern, I used to tremble at him. He was a, he was a, when he, when he yelled and when he had a hold of you, boy, you knew all about it. But his power is puny compared to Christ's and his judgment well, weak compared to Christ's all-seeing, all-knowing, completely perceptive. In fact, the joined-up might of the entire world is nothing uh, even compared to the power that Christ himself has. I mean, it's like the, the whole world joining its, its might to fight the Lord is like my six-year-old swinging at me in a toy fight. It's ridiculous. Now, these verses remind us of his power. And these uh, verses remind, her, remind us of his authority to judge. There's no escape. He's not going to go away. This is inevitable. Now, his judgment on that day of, his, of Christ's return is totally tied up with how we live today. As we see in that verse 12, I will give to each person according to what they have done. And verses 14 and 15 tell us exactly what will happen when he does. This great separation will take place. Some will find themselves inside the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Others outside. Some will have access to the tree of life and the eternal enjoyment of God and his blessings. Others, by implication, will have eternal hell apart from God and his blessings. Now, some are depicted as citizens, others as dogs. Now, when you read dogs, right, don't think poochons or cavachons or whatever other cute form or weird breed that you can get nowadays. Dogs were manky scavengers or feral, wild. It's an insult to be called a dog. It's not a compliment. Now, what qualifies a person for one or the other, to be inside the city or outside his dogs? Well, we've all done what the dogs do in verse 15. 
even if we haven't dabbled in the occult like the first item on the list, we've looked in lust, we've told lies, we're all by nature dogs. And if he came only to repay us for our deeds, who would stand? Now the difference you see is spelled out in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, robes. Our robes are, it's a figurative way of talking about the deeds by which our lives are clothed. Okay, Isaiah says all our deeds are like filthy rags. Okay, now how do we then become clean? How do we wash our robes? Well, Revelation 7, 14 tells us. It's a brilliant memory verse for us. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, it says. They have washed their robes and made them white, pure, clean, holy, in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. His blood points clearly to his death. He died to make us clean so that those who have entered to the city are righteous in his sight and not sinful in his sight. And what this passage again says for us, what we've seen before in this book and throughout the New Testament, that only those who turn from sin to Jesus in faith and repentance are washed, cleansed, forgiven. Now, what purpose does Jesus have for, his, for encouraging his churches then to look forward to this reward? My reward is with me. That's what he gets us to put our, our attention on. It's simple, really. It's to keep the great goal of God's salvation plan in sight. This is where all of existence is headed, the white hot worship of the Son of God by the redeemed of God in the new heaven and new earth provided by God. And it's to help those of us whose reward is Christ to long for his return and let it shape, importantly, how we live today. It's life changing today. What we see coming down the track in the future ought to shape how we live today. So as we fix our eyes on his reward, the reward that we get for what he did, it stimulates. It stimulates the kind of obedience that we looked at in the first point. But it also stimulates the kind of longing that we see in verse 17. A longing that is, in a sense, echoed or longed for by the Holy Spirit himself. Come, says the Spirit. Come, says the church, the bride. Both welcome the, the coming of Christ, indeed invite it with this word come, because the rewards of that will be out of this world. This is the best thing that we can possibly hope for. And those who long for it serve best in this world. But there's another thing. It's also to help those whose reward is consistent with their deeds in this life recognise it especially those who are apart from God. If that's you, then you need to hear verse 17 because the invitation is still open today. It says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Now, if you know yourself to be a sinner in keeping with the list of verse 15 and recognise in your heart that you are not going to be a citizen, you're going to be a dog. 
If you feel in your heart a thirst for Jesus and a desire or a wish for that to be different so that you are a citizen, then reach out for him today in prayer. Freely take his gift of salvation in recognition of the fact that you're a great sinner and he's a great saviour. That's what all who enter as citizens of heaven have done. Confess your sin. Look to his death on the cross and see him shed his blood to save you from the punishment you deserve for those sins. Believe the gospel and be a citizen. If you want to talk to us about that, we'd love to chat to you. Email us, get in touch, um, find out more. Well, what does Jesus want us to do with this book? The first two things we've seen are simple, really. He wants us first to obey the words of this book and secondly, to look, to fix our eyes on Jesus, on his rewards. And lastly, he wants us to pray, to respond in prayer to the promise of his coming. That's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Look with me at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Say, Amen. Our Amen is the expression of our agreement with everything in this book, not just Revelation, but all. And Amen means truly, let it be so. And we can pray along with our Amen, uh, come Lord Jesus. That's the expression of our longing for him, the author and the focus of this book. The good news is that the one who freed us from our sins by his blood and who has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father has said he's coming soon. When that is, we do not know, but every day is one day closer, one day closer to that time when we'll enter that city, when we'll eat from that tree, when we'll see his face, one day away from where he'll wipe away that tear, the one who'll be our shepherd forever, the one who, of whom and to whom we will sing all that he is worthy of all blessing and honour and glory. He is the one who gives us the grace of his presence, as verse 21 says, to help all of this that we've learned in Revelation hit home, captured our hearts, and indeed to keep the words written in this prophecy, in this book of Revelation. Blessed is the one then, who, as it says in chapter one, reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Amen. Come Lord Jesus.